From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So oftentimes when people talk about their faith, what they're referring to is these are the list of things that I believe about God, Jesus, salvation, the Bible, and so on. What I try to say is faith is not just a noun. There's also the lexical category of verb, that faith is something that we do. It has this action component. I talk about it as a posture. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Colby Martin. He's co-founder of Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California, and he's co-host of The Kate and Colby Show. He's a leading voice in the progressive Christian movement and helps lead Launchpad Partners Incorporated, which seeks to plant and resource progressive Christian communities across the United States. He's the author of Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. Reverend Colby Martin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you, David. This is a this is a delight to be here. Thank you. Well, today we're talking about your recent book, The Shift: Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. And so, for our listeners, what we're going to be talking about this hour is largely kind of either a roadmap or a user's manual for people who are making that shift, both in the process of moving from more conservative to more progressive notions of Christianity, but also what to do once the shift has occurred. In other words, how to deal with both your conservative family and friends and also your zealous progressive family and friends. So first of all, in my characterization of what this book is all about. Have I gotten it right? Or would you say anything else to correct me along the way? No, I think that's a, I think that's a good summary. When I was trying to think through what is the big idea of this book, it really was this idea of a survival guide because this journey, this process of moving or shifting from conservative expression of faith to something more progressive, it is fraught with complications and obstacles and difficulties and challenges and pain points. And if I could in any way help to not only normalize that for people, which is to say, oh, this is hard, not because you're doing it wrong, just because it's hard. If I can help normalize that and maybe give some insight into what obstacles they might be facing or will face eventually and how maybe to help navigate that. I think that's, that's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty ambitious thing that I've, I've set out to do, but I hope it's working. Well, in this conversation, I want to get into questions about kind of what your background is and kind of how you came to this position. We'll get there. But on the way to getting there, I want to define some terms. So we're using, first of all, this word progressive and progressive Christianity. There's a lot of ways we might define that term. And some of the ways that spring to my mind is when I've been in conversations about progressive Christianity, sometimes people mean a more traditional style of articulation of the faith, but with a very progressive political actuality along with it. Others want to redefine some of the basic tenets of the faith, like the the divinity of Christ or the Trinity or those sorts of things. So... First of all, when you're using the term progressive, how are you meaning that term? Yeah, it's such a great and important question. And I love starting here. And and often what I like to say right off the bat is that I think labels are incredibly helpful and very much useful because they give us some sense of where we end and where others might begin. Like they give us some some boundaries, some sort of markers of understanding kind of how we fit in relation to the rest of the world. So labels are really helpful until they're not. And then they and then they hit a point where they become more restrictive and they start to hold us back a bit. And so sometimes we have to then transcend these labels. But I think to the degree that one could 
try and articulate uh, sort of my particular expression of faith, I have landed on these two terms of progressive and Christian, not because these two terms are necessarily perfect by any means. They can go in many different directions and mean many different things to different people. I get it, but they get us close, I think, to what, at least how I sort of identify and move through the world. So for me, this idea of progressive, in the book I talk about, there's kind of four fundamental or foundational values where if a person at least sort of resonates with these four things, then that's what I'm kind of talking about when I'm talking about someone who might be progressive. And the first is someone who is what I would call open and affirming of LGBTQ people. And by that, I mean that person would not consider homosexuality to be a sin, a person who would not say, oh, if you can't marry someone of the same sex, that that would never be blessed by God. So you're basically affirming that there's a, a range in the spectrum of sexual identities and orientations. When you do that within, especially the Christian tradition, you have crossed a very clear line in the sand where you've now become what people would call a progressive person. So that's the first marker. The second would be what's called egalitarian insofar as it relates to genders so that you would see that men and women both created in the image of God and are equal. So if you are on the more conservative end of the spectrum, then you might more resonate with the idea that you know man is slightly better than women, like just 51%, 49%, just maybe a little closer to the divine or a little more, whatever it is. But as you move towards the progressive end of the spectrum, you start to see this flattening where no, 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 all we're all equal. We're all equal. The third thing that I would say as it relates to being a progressive, and this is really coming to the forefront right now in our culture, is that you have this awareness that moving towards ending things like white supremacy and being anti-racist, like that, that matters. And the more you move towards the progressive end of the spectrum, the more you start to see that value. And then the last thing, which I think maybe the overarching piece of this, is that to be a progressive person is to have this deep conviction that growth and movement and change and transformation, that these things are not just inevitable, but they can be good. So the more you move towards the conservative end of the spectrum, and I know you know this, David, the more you move towards that, the more you get this sense that, no, we've already figured out everything there is to figure out. It's back in the past. All we got to do is just lock down and stay in the past or at some sort of static moment of truth. But as you move towards this more progressive end of the spectrum, you discover, no, like faith is not about a static arriving. It's about a dynamic transformation and you're open to that. And so for me, that's kind of the four of the markers of what I mean when I say progressive. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Colby Martin about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Well, let me say what I just heard you define in terms of what progressive means. So open and affirming to LGBTQI persons, egalitarian in terms of gender between male and female, and a commitment to anti-racism and a deep conviction that growth is not only inevitable, but it's good. And so you've defined now what you mean by progressive, and that's very helpful. Now let's talk about the conservative Christianity that you're describing as we are undergoing this shift, or as, as readers are undergoing this shift to this more progressive Christianity that, that you've defined. You've started to line out for us how you imagine that conservative Christianity defines itself, but maybe let's do a similar thing to what you just did with progressive. How do you think about that conservative viewpoint when you are imagining it? And I'm wanting to say this because oftentimes in these kinds of discussions, when there's two sides to a discussion, the risk is that the other side gets caricatured. I know you don't want to do that. So lay right. out for us what you're thinking of when you're talking about the conservative side of this divide. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, one of the last things I want to do is to create these sort of straw man caricatures of peoples or ideologies or, or ways of being in the world. One of the ways that I think is helpful for me, at least, and I've seen it unlock others as well. And I mentioned, you know, I, I sort of use this language when I was describing what it means to be progressive for me is to hold in mind this idea of a spectrum, sort of that you're moving along. So you think about the United States and you have the more you go towards the West Coast, the more you might find yourself recognizing certain speech patterns, a different 
types of culture, maybe ways that people dress kind of. And then as you move towards the East Coast, you get a slightly different expression of that. Now, it's not to say that everybody who lives on the West Coast is this exact West Coast person and or this East Coast person, but you can expect some sort of general ways of looking and feeling and, and being in the world as you move across the United States. And I think when we talk about this spectrum of spirituality or this, as I call it, an expression of the Christian faith, there is a similar spectrum. And the more you move towards the conservative end, what I've what I've both found uh, and, and also lived, and we can get into this later because I was born and raised into this system, so I know it intimately. The more you move towards the conservative end of the spectrum, what you discover is that there is this deeply held conviction that the thing that matters most to God, the creator of the entire universe, the, things that, the thing that matters most to God is what humans believe, the ideas that we hold between our head, we have decided this is the most important thing to God. Now, I often want to step back and be like, where did that idea come from? Because that does feel a bit arbitrary to me of all the things that a divine could care about. Why ideas? Why why beliefs in between our ears? But the more you move towards the conservative end of the spectrum, the deeper commitment there is to this idea that what you believe is everything. So you have to get the right beliefs. Your entire faith, both on earth and then any sort of destiny you might have after life, is solely dependent on belief, getting the right belief. And then as you move throughout your life, the, the goal is to lock that down, is to hold on to that with certainty. Because your very standing with God is dependent on having the right belief and then holding it tightly. And so this becomes a, a real tension then between these two ends of the spectrum, because as you move towards the progressive, you find people that want to ask questions and explore different ideas and maybe voice their doubts. But then as you move more towards the conservative end of the spectrum, there's a fear of questions and a fear of doubts, because suddenly that would undermine your very standing with the divine. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the tension, the spectrum that you're talking about, on the one end, the progressive end, let's call it, is a God that delights in what we might call fluidity. Uh, what you said is the deep conviction that growth is inevitable and good. On the other end of that spectrum, if I'm hearing you correctly, is a conviction that God wants solidity. So on the one hand, fluidity, on the other end, solidity, hmm. and those are completely different concepts for naming what God desires in our worship, what God desires in our actions, what God desires in our church structures. So it, it almost seems like you're not dealing with a spectrum. It seems almost like you're dealing with two sides of a large chasm or a grand canyon. So how is it that you see this as either being a spectrum or one is flowing between the other or a bridge? Uh, I mean, is, there, is our job to build a bridge or to draw and beckon people to come along that spectrum? How do you see this process of the shift happening mechanically? Man, that's a great observation. Yes, I do think, David, that you're not wrong. That is one way I think that we could frame it, is that we could set these up as binaries. We could set these up as two opposites on either side of a chasm, as opposed to maybe, as I was arguing, two poles on the end of spectrums. So what comes up for me when you say that is really, it's, it's almost like, how do you choose to look at it? I do honestly think you could frame it as two ends of the spectrum that you are moving throughout that you that you might have. So if you imagine in this scenario, the far right, the far conservative end, the extreme end of this spectrum, Everything might be about getting the right beliefs and locking it down. And there isn't any wiggle room. And then if, if you move all the way to the other end of what I continue to insist is a spectrum, then you might have, well, there is no truth and there is no, there's nothing we should ever stake a, a claim in because it's all just, as you said, fluid. I think these are both extremes that are maybe uh, taking us in directions that ultimately won't be fulfilling or life-giving. So I would argue there is room to move between these two as we give ourselves the freedom to ask questions and get curious and express our doubts. That's moving towards the progressive end of the spectrum. But I do think we can allow ourselves to have these moments where like, you know what, this thing though, this conviction, I am just sort of, I'm going to plant some roots into this idea, this belief, this value. Now, I personally do have things that I planted roots in and yet 
even my posture in those, David, is one of open-handedness. My posture in that is I'm holding this to be true and I'm putting my roots in this. And yet I understand that I could still be wrong. I could still be wrong. I'm going to live as though this were true, but I hold it with a posture of openness, knowing that I might be wrong. So I hold space for people who might want to see these as binaries, but I I do want to say, or we could look at it as more of a spectrum. And that would, I, I argue that might be a more, at least it gives us a chance to have a dialogue with each other and communication. And so when you talk about this goal of, of building these bridges or spanning the spectrum, I think if we see each other as just, you are this, or you are that, you are on this side or that side, that becomes a lot more challenging. But if we see it as, oh no, we're just all sort of on different spots on the spectrum. For me, that opens up possibilities for uh, connection that might not be there if we were just binary sides. I love this idea of open-handedness, and we'll, we will definitely dig into that. But on the way there, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Colby Martin. He's co-founder of Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California, and he's co-host of The Kate and Colby Show. We're talking about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Colby Martin. He's co-founder of Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Well, now I'd like to talk a little bit about your background, and I want to do it by way of a word that you use sort of late in your book, The Shift, that just fascinated me. The word that you use is oversaved. And I think that I think that, that can, if we, if we explore what you mean by this term oversaved, that's a really good way for getting our conversation for our listeners into the realm of kind of what your background was when you were growing up. So tell us, first of all, what you mean by this term oversaved. Yeah. Pardon my laughter. I just, uh, there's something about that term. I came across it, I want to say like 10, 12 years ago by a a comedian. And uh, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh, that's it. That describes perfectly (laughs) sort of my life from the age 17 to, I want to say like 24, 25. And I used it all throughout my ministry in the last decade or so. And you, you always, you know, based on people's reactions, whether they get it or not, you know, there's just, there's a sense of, oh, people know, I, I get what that means. So for me to talk about that period of my life when I was oversaved is a way to describe this idea that everything in my life was about Jesus, <laughs> which I, I know for some Christians listening that might be like, no, that's the point. Well, I get it. Yes. And no. My point is, is I couldn't even have a basic conversation with a barista at Starbucks without spinning the conversation into some sort of quiz about the destiny of his or her eternal soul. And most people, when they're steaming the milk to make you a latte, they just want to steam the stinking milk. They don't want to get into an argument about, you know, the four spiritual laws. And yet when I was oversaved, I I didn't know how to just have these regular relationships with people, these everyday conversations, everything became this this heightened experience of, I have to try to save everybody's soul. Which part of me, David, looks back and thinks, well, if you're going to have the belief, as I did at that time, if you're going to have the belief that the majority of humanity is going to spend eternity in conscious eternal torment, if they don't have the correct beliefs about Jesus, if that is your fundamental belief, then you should be out there like trying to convert everybody. So part of me is like, well, I think I was taking the call pretty seriously. 
but really just, it, it held me back. It held me back from honest relationships. It held me back from just, I think, enjoying and, and being present to my life in so many ways. So yeah, oversaved was just this way of making everything about, you know, eternal damnation and salvation all the time. And it quite frankly was just exhausting and annoying. <laughs> well, let me see if I've heard you correctly. So if I'm hearing you right, your description of that period of time in your life, you say it got in the way of your relationships. And what I'm hearing in that is when you were approaching anyone in a relationship, whether we're talking about the barista at Starbucks or whether we're talking about kind of more intimate personal relationships, it almost sounds like you had a script or an expectation of where that person was. Like this person's in the burning building and my job is to get them out of the burning building, even if they don't know that they're in the burning building. And that's all we're about because the buildings on fire. Is that a fair characterization or would you describe it a different way? No, I think that's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully terrible metaphor to use. Yes. Well, but what that means then, if I'm hearing you right, is that any time that you would get into any kind of interaction with anybody, you already knew what the end game was. You had one of two options. You were either pulling them out of the burning building, yay you, you're the superhero, or they're in the burning building and they chose to stay there and so they get what they deserve. Like that, that doesn't lead to complexity or nuance in relationships, does it? Uh, no, not at all. That was certainly the theological grid in which I was raised and then trained. So that was, yeah, that was that was sort of my fundamental beliefs about the world. And I tried to live those beliefs out with as much conviction and integrity as I could. Um, and it, yeah, like I said, it just did not lend itself toward having any sort of honest and true relationships because there was always this ulterior motive. And I look back now and I, I can I, I can see how the people in my life, they felt that. They felt like, man, if I don't believe exactly what Colby thinks I should believe, then he's just never going to really be okay with me. And I just, I have to be honest, that was just how I moved through the world. Like I thought less of you if you were not a type of Christian that I thought you should be. And that's just no way, that's no way to build relationships. Well, let's classify this then. And again, I don't want to caricature, but if we wanted to get a handle for this, we could call this holier-than-thou conservatism. And I say that because later in our conversation, you and I are going to talk about holier-than-thou progressivism. But for now, let's stay with this conservative side of the conversation. So if we're thinking about that as the orientation with which one is looking at the world and looking at one's relationships, I want to ask a theological question. Because it sounds to me like that puts an awful lot on your shoulders as the person proclaiming the solid truth of God. It doesn't put a lot of weight on God's shoulders. It, it almost seems like, even though you said earlier in the conversation that a hallmark of the conservative viewpoint is the correct belief, there's an awful lot of heavy lifting, correct action here, and not a lot of room for grace. Have I misunderstood that, or am I, am I seeing something here in what you're saying? Yeah, I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. I, I you know, I was born and raised in a in a Baptist context. So I really should have become a Calvinist. And yet in my most formative years at uh, at at college when I was getting my bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry and really doing my my theological training, even though it was a Baptist college with professors that were I don't know if they were five-point Calvinists, sorry to the listeners for whom this is annoying jargon. I don't know if they were five-point Calvinists, but they were definitely four and above. And yet that never fully grabbed me. So my my only point in bringing that up is I always sort of found myself more on the kind of Wesleyan Arminian end, which is that people's so that which is basically to say that I didn't ever subscribe to this idea of predestination, which is a fancy way of saying that before the beginning of time, God foreordained that some souls would get to spend eternity. God, it's just, I haven't said this out loud in a long time, and I it just makes me cringe saying it out loud. But the idea is that God foreordained some souls from the beginning of time to spend eternity in bliss. And the rest of the souls, which is really most of them, in eternal conscious torment. And there's really nothing that anybody can do about it. And so I, my sense was always, well, if that's the case, then what's the point of evangelism? What's the point of talking to anybody about my faith? And so I sort of always gravitated towards 
a more Wesleyan or Arminian view, which is that, no, like we need to convert people. So that was kind of how I moved through the world for, like I said, a good, a good chunk of my life. And in the process of moving through the world, you felt a call to become a pastor and you then joined churches, which as you say in your book, The Shift, at first, at least the churches that you joined were churches that kind of had this very conservative, very evangelical kind of viewpoint. And over time, your role in those churches and your relationship to those churches began to shift to the point, and if I'm misremembering this, please correct me, but I believe you say that you were sort of thrown out of two churches along the way to your present role as co-founder of the Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego. So talk to me about that journey. What was it that sort of led you to ministry? And then maybe let's start there, and then we'll talk about kind of what made you shift in your own approach to ministry. But let's start with what drew you to the ministry in the first place. When I was 17 years old, going into my senior year of high school, uh, that summer I went on a a trip. I was born and raised in Oregon, and we went on a youth trip down to Southern California. And the point of the trip was this week-long conference of training high school students in the art of apologetics and evangelism. So in the morning, you would learn apologetics, which for the listener means basically how to defend your faith and explain why other people are wrong and you're right. And they would train you in the morning and then send you out on the beaches of Southern California, two by two, obviously, because that's biblical, to go and do random street witnessing. And I remember coming back from that first afternoon of walking up to random people on Huntington Beach, you know, asking them, hey, if you died right now, if this surfboard <laughs> slices your head open and you die, do you know where you would go? I remember coming back from that experience, getting back to the room I was staying at, falling on my bed and just weeping, just sobbing, which for the listener, they should know is not a posture or a scenario that I find myself in very often. And I'm just sobbing on my bed. And in that moment, so I'm going to describe it as though it's in present tense, even though I might use different language now. In that moment, I felt this fork in the road where I felt God was saying, Colby, you can keep doing life as you've been doing which at that point in my life was really all about me, just sort of a selfish, egotistical, life's all about me, whatever I can do to be cooler or more popular or bring more attention to me. And I felt God saying, you could keep going that route if you want, or you can use this moment to do an about face and live a life for me, live a life for the glory of God. And the reason why I was broken in that moment is because I realized, David, how much of a fraud I was. I realized that I was out telling people about have a relationship with Jesus and go to heaven when you die. And yet I had nothing resembling that in my own heart. I had no idea who God was as revealed in Jesus. Like I just went through, I just said the words because I was born and raised in that system and I just knew the right answers. And so in that moment, I just felt broken and I had this sense that I I wanted to take the route of, uh, again, this is how I would have described it at that time, of giving my life to God. And that week I felt this call, I, I described it as a call into full-time ministry. I knew that I want my life to be about the constant bringing of awareness and attention and glory to the God as revealed in Jesus. And so I gave up my dreams to be a graphic designer in New York, uh, which I probably never would have succeeded anyway, but point being, that was my plan. I gave up that dream and enrolled in a nearby Christian liberal arts college so I could get my degree in pastoral ministry and begin my dream to be a pastor. And so that's what I did. Got my degree, became a pastor at a a large church in Salem, Oregon. At that time, I was doing worship and art ministry. So I was playing guitar, leading worship, creating arts ministries. That took me to a church in Arizona where my wife and I, and at that time, two of our kids moved to Arizona, joined this young evangelical growing church as their worship and arts pastor and helped grow it from a, you know, a 200 person church to 2000 person church. And yet in the midst of that time, when I was there for about five years, that David was when I began my shift. That was when I began for the first time to really ask meaningful questions about the faith tradition that I was raised with. Really ask for the first time poignant questions about beliefs that I had held and defended and explained and taught, but never really thought critically about, never really 
imagined that maybe there have been different ways that people have thought about this throughout the history of the church. And so I began, uh, your listeners might be familiar with this language, but I began this process of deconstructing my faith. Kind of, I imagine it as this Jenga tower, and I began to just take out these blocks one at a time, lift them out, inspect them. And some of these blocks, David, I would say, you know what, this one, there's just, there's nothing in me that can commit to this belief anymore. And I would throw it away. There's others that I'm like, you know what, I, I think there's still something here, but it needs tweaked a little bit. And so I would, I would maybe paint it or, or sand it down and then put it back in the tower. Uh, and that was a, uh, gosh, I don't know, three, four, five year long process. And I realize I'm taking a really long time to tell this story. So I'll tighten it up here. But, uh, at the sort of at the end of my five years there in Arizona, my theology had shifted on LGBTQ affirmation. So I became, as I said at the top of the show, an open and affirming person in my theology. And when my church discovered that, they fired me within a matter of days. So after that experience, which I, I write about in my first book, Unclobber, after that experience, my wife and I found ourselves in San Diego at another church where I tried to sort of figure out can I be this progressive Christian and still be a pastor? Like, are there contexts for this? Are there spaces for this? And the first church we tried to do that in San Diego at didn't work for a number of reasons. And out of kind of the ashes of that dumpster fire (laughs) was when my wife and I started a church in our own living room where we thought, you know what, can we hold these progressive values? And can we stay rooted in some version of Christianity? And can we build an honest, authentic, grace-filled, compassionate community that is chasing after sort of this vision of uh, what Jesus describes the kingdom of God. And so that's what we've been doing for the last, what is it, six and a half years now. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Colby Martin about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Well, I appreciate so much you're walking us through the steps from your conservative background to your present role as co-founder of the Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego. But in order to sort of think about this now, I want to use a phrase that you raise up in your book, The Shift. It's a phrase you borrow from Rob Bell, this notion of transcending and including. So in this journey, as you look back, what did you transcend in this process of moving from conservative ministry to more progressive ministry? And what have you included? What have you honored along that way? I've really been empowered by that language to trend of transcend and include, which I, which I got from Rob Bell. I think he got it from Ken Wilber before him. But the idea is that you, you do, you move on to the next click, you move on to the next stage. You, 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 you continue this movement of growth and transformation, and yet you turn around and and you don't leave everything behind you. You bring with you things that might still have purpose and meaning and value. It's kind of it's another way of saying you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So for me, as I as I've gone on this shift of of moving from conservative to more progressive expression of Christianity, some of the things I've transcended. You know, I said it up at the top, so I don't want to be a broken record, but I think this is one of the biggest ones. One of the things I've transcended is this idea that what God cares about most is what we believe. Like, I I think that is a fundamentally flawed foundation to build a person's faith upon, to think that what God cares about most is what we believe. Certainly wasn't what Jesus cared about most. So if at all we want to agree with the, the author of Hebrews who said that Jesus is the exact representation of God, the express image of God— Certainly, Jesus was not interested in what people believed. Uh, he was interested in what people, how they lived, what they did. So that's definitely one that I transcended. Is that I, it's it can't be about right beliefs. It just can't be. There's 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 no there's no way that it can be about right beliefs. Another thing that I transcended is the way, and I have a chapter about this in the book. Is the way that I thought about the Bible. So I came out of a tradition where the Bible has, you know, there's three I words. There's inerrant, which is to say the Bible has no errors. There's infallible, which is to say that if you follow it correctly, it won't lead you astray. And it's inspired, which is to say that it sort of came directly from God. And I have in my shift, I have transcended uh, and moved away from the first two I's. Like the, the, the Bible's not inerrant. David, I think, I think we know this. There's just, it's full of errors and contradictions and that's okay. That doesn't have to be scary by the way. And it's not infallible. Like this is demonstrably false there. We have seen time and time again that Christians and 
churches and religions have followed the Bible religiously and led to some atrocious actions in the world. So it can't be infallible. But then when I talk about including what I have kept with me, so I've transcended inerrant and infallible, but I've brought with me this idea of inspired. Even though I might describe it differently, I still think that there is a sense in which this, um, I talk about the Bible as this inspired collection, this old dusty books uh, of letters and poems and stories and accounts of how humans have wrestled with themselves and wrestled with the divine to try to figure out what does it mean to be alive? Like there's a lot of hard earned truth that has made its way through hundreds and thousands of years to still sort of be with us today. And and I think those hard-earned truths, I think those are inspired. So that's one example of how I've transcended and included specifically in my own faith. What that puts me in mind of is another phrase that you bring to us from Anne Lamott, who gets it from Paul Tillich, that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. And that, that really seems to be a through line in what you're, what you're talking about here, this notion that somehow we could be absolutely certain about a mysterious God, and we could know all the things that we're supposed to believe so that God will be pleased with us. You're really withdrawing from that notion of an assertive faith. And it almost seems like if, if, if it's not a faith of assertion, how would you, if you were to describe a characterization of the faith that you're talking about? Is it a faith of grasping, a faith of reaching, a faith of, what is it a faith of? Yeah, it's a, it's a faith of trust. It's a faith of trust. One of the moves I try to make at the very beginning of the book is to expand the reader's conception of this idea of faith. Because I think for many people, and this was certainly true for me, but for many people, the idea of faith that we've been given was, was really just in the noun sense of the word, which is to say, faith is a thing that I have. I, I possess my faith. And all that means is it's a collection of beliefs. So oftentimes when people talk about their faith, what they're referring to is these are the list of things that I believe about God, Jesus, salvation, the Bible, and so on. What I try to say is faith is not just a noun. There's also the lexical category of verb, that faith is something that we do. It has this action component. I talk about it as a posture. I love how Richard Rohr describes faith as this ever opening and turning to the possibility that there might be something out there. And this is how, so our, our family has this uh, cat, her name is Nala. And we just moved recently to a house that has a ton of windows and a lot of natural daylight. And what I've noticed is that all throughout the day, Nala finds herself moving throughout the house from the floor to the couch, to the chair, to the table. And I finally realized, oh, she's chasing the sun. She's moving to where the light is, and she'll take a nap in the in the nice warmth of the sun, and and then she might wake up from her nap to discover that the sun has moved, and so she then wanders to another part of the house. And I think, man, that is a really gorgeous representation of what it means for me to practice faith. It's the sense that out there, there is this brilliant light, this source of love. And we are constantly opening and turning and having this posture. And so to go back to my word, then it's it's this trust. And this is what the Greek word in the New Testament is the Greek word pistis, which most of the time English translators go with translating it as faith. But I feel like a, maybe a more accurate representation of pistis is this idea of trust. And so one thing that I can invite readers to do if they still read the New Testament is anytime you come across the word faith, just swap it out with the word trust. And not only are you going to get closer to the heart of what this Greek word pistis is, but you're also going to begin to open up what it means to sort of be a person, quote, of faith, which is not about just believing things, but about trusting. And I think that has a, a radically different connotation to it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Colby Martin. We're talking about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a frontlines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. 
I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Colby Martin. He's co-founder of the Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California. He's the author of the book Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. And today, we're talking about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. You have an image here in your book, The Shift, about when people arrive at a more progressive vision of their faith. And you you say it's almost like they feel like they have a new superpower. And they begin, and again, I don't want to caricature, but it's hard not to draw in these broad stroke terms. The person is like, now I see clearly. I'm going to go back to my former conversation partners, and I'm going to instruct them how they are still not seeing things clearly. I'm going to correct their vision. And so we talked before about a kind of holier-than-thou conservatism, but here's where we arrive at what we might call a holy than thou progressivism. So as a person is making this shift, as they are moving from more conservative to more progressive versions of their faith, what should they be on the lookout for? What tendencies should they be resisting that might crop up that would cause them to have this kind of holier than thou progressive viewpoint? It's pretty common, I've found, both because I lived it myself and then as I've been doing this, this work specifically in this kind of progressive Christian space for the almost the past decade, not quite, but we're getting close. I have noticed it is very, very common to go through a shift. So we're moving away from our conservative Christian roots and we're we're discovering a more progressive expression of our faith. It's very common to have this what do, what do I want to what do I want to call it? This kind of superior sense that, oh, I'm now more evolved. Now, I use the word evolving a lot. I talk about that, you know, growth and transformation and evolution is is natural and normal. But I think this can get away from us when we think that people who are on the more progressive end of the spectrum are now suddenly better humans, are now suddenly more evolved. I would say, no, no, no. You might just have, you might have expanded some of how you think about things and you might be awake to some things that previously you were asleep to, but good gravy, don't get carried away and start to think that you are now better than. So I like that you're describing it as holier than now progressivism. That is a hundred percent a real phenomenon that exists. One of the things that I had to do to kind of pull myself back from that ledge. And I'll be honest, David, I don't, I don't know that I'm fully off the ledge. I still get caught up in sort of thinking that I am smarter and better than people who might be on the more conservative end of the spectrum. That's a battle that I continue to fight within myself. But one of the things that I has helped pull me back and I hope helps others is to go back to this idea. Again, the point of all of this is not to believe the right things is not to get the right answers. Because oftentimes what can happen is I use the analogy of a Jenga uh, tower earlier. Oftentimes we we pull the pieces down or pull them apart, and then we end up just building a new Jenga tower with these new ideas and these new beliefs. And maybe they're they're more expansive and more inclusive and and whatever it might be. But the foundation we haven't changed, and the foundation is still this idea that getting the right answers is the most important thing. And once you have that, you're good to go. I think that foundation needs to die. I think we need to say that that is not what matters most. We need a foundation of love. We need a foundation of compassion. We need a foundation of kindness and gentleness. That needs to be our foundation. What you believe suddenly now matters less than how you treat other people. And I think that has helped pull me back off the edge to realize just because my beliefs might be different than other people's or different than what they used to be doesn't make me a better person. What begins to make me a better person, if that can even be possible, is when I start to love my neighbor as myself. When I start to actually love my enemies, when I start to show compassion, that's when I start to really begin to embody these things. Well, and this gets to what you're saying earlier about faith not being a noun belief not being a noun, but instead these things being verb-like, that your actions, your interrelationships with others really become the ground from which these other goods might spring. It's not getting your beliefs in the right order and then you'll be good. It's 
keep trying to act better, keep trying to improve your relationships, keep trying to be more forgiving and more loving, and these other attitudes will flow from that. As I characterize it like that, I want to make sure I've got it right. Have I said it in a way that you recognize what you're saying, or would you say it differently? No, I think you've done a a great job of reflecting back what I've said. I think I just haven't rounded out the picture fully enough as I hear you say it back. So I'll add one last piece, which is to say, it's not that I'm suggesting, or it's not that I think that beliefs are entirely irrelevant because beliefs are very much the things from which our actions flow from. So we, we act according to our beliefs. So beliefs do matter insofar as some beliefs lead to very damaging and harmful actions in the world. So beliefs that, for instance, LGBTQ people are abominations lead to destructive and harmful practices, lead to attitudes and behaviors of exclusion and shaming, which is very harmful. Beliefs that men are slightly superior to women lead to damaging actions of gaslighting and abuse and other sorts of dynamics. So my point is not that beliefs don't matter. You just believe whatever you want. No, beliefs do matter. My point is when it comes to, like I talk about our standing with the divine, or as I often say, when it comes to our belovedness, our place as a loved child of God, what we believe is irrelevant. (laughs) We are loved children of God, full stop. There is not a God that is more pleased with or loves more those who believe certain things than others. This is just simply not something that I think is real or true. So I think that's just the piece I would add is that I do still hold space for the importance of beliefs. And some beliefs do need to change and do need to be altered because they lead to very harmful and and unjust things in the world. But I want to put this idea of belief in its appropriate place in the hierarchy of what matters. Your use of the word hierarchy there spurs a, a, a tangent question. So you've, you've said in your book, The Shift, that oftentimes when more conservative persons of faith see this shift happen in those that they had been in relationship with, they will sometimes characterize it with the phrase that they've left the faith. And I'm hearing you saying that as you watch yourself and others undergo the shift, you you don't feel as if you have left the Christian faith. But I'm also aware that you are coming from a tradition where there is a real turning away from that word you just used, from hierarchy. And so let me ask you the question, who is the authority to be able to say what Christianity is in the way that you understand it? Is there an overarching authority or figure that can say, you're in, you're out? Or is this simply a matter, and simply I don't mean to, is this a matter of conscience, the interior comportment? How do you see that teasing itself out? Can I start by saying, I don't know? (laughs) Can I start by just acknowledging right off the top? Like that's a, absolutely, that's a really good question. And I don't, I don't know that what I'm about to say really should be taken with any degree of, uh, of smartness as evidenced by the fact that I just ended my sentence with smartness. So as you ask that question, the story that comes to my mind, and I write about this a little bit in the book uh, on the chapter on Jesus is there's this moment where, as I understand the story, Jesus is having this really human moment. And I think oftentimes Christianity has overemphasized the divinity of Jesus and forgotten sort of the humanity part of him. But there's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus had just experienced the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. He'd gone through multiple instances of being challenged by Pharisees and other leaders, gone through multiple instances of having his own followers not understand him or doubt him. He's tired and hungry and lonely. He can't get away from the crowds. And so you have when you build up all the stories in the in the gospels like man jesus has got to be exhausted and lonely and feeling misunderstood and not given space to mourn and so then that this is the context in which jesus then says to his friends who do people say that i am and his friends respond with some version of the answer basically you're a, you're a dead jewish prophet come back to life you know jeremiah ezekiel john the baptist and then jesus turns again these are his close friends that he's been doing life with intimately, vulnerably. And he says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter responds, and I think this is the gospel of Luke that goes this way. Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, 
for no man, no person has revealed this to you. In other words, no external source has given you this insight. Rather, Jesus says, my father in heaven has shown this to you. Now, I think a lot of people might read that and just be like, oh, cool. Peter got some blast of divine inspiration given to him. For me, that idea of the father in heaven has, has revealed it to you is, is really just another way of saying you came to this insight through your interior world, not exterior. This wasn't taught to you. This wasn't given to you from some sort of external source, but this was a truth. This was a deep knowing that came from the inside. And this is fascinating to me that Jesus affirms this sort of knowing, this sort of intuition. So to respond to your question of of where's the authority, I don't know. I'm conscious of how the 2,000-year history of the Christian tradition is fraught with multiple different denominations and sects that are claiming to have the right version. Schisms here and breaks there over what happens with the communion elements and how to baptize and what to think of the Bible. And like, we're constantly dividing over who has the right to say what is true. And and, and it's, I don't know, that that's a messy, complicated arena. I think that maybe what the church has lost sight of is the power of this deep inner knowing. And in many ways, we've we've taught our church the opposite. Don't trust your inner world. Like the Jeremiah, some I forget the chapter and verse, but the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Like don't trust the inner knowing. And yet here's this moment where Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. Blessed are you because you came to that insight from the inside. And I think that's powerful, David. Like I, I know that it's got to be measured against some external things. I get it. Like we can't just I get it, but I, but I, I guess that's what came up for me in your question is maybe it's time that we remember the power of being able to discern this deep knowing uh, deep within us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Colby Martin about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Well, earlier in the conversation, we talked about this concept from Rob Bell, the idea of transcending and including. But in your own experience as a pastor, you have observed some who have come to your more progressive worship services who, in transcending their conservative faith, part of what they have included is the pain and the shame that they almost built into their bodies as participants in that more conservative faith. And so part of what we're talking about here is when someone is triggered by language that overlaps the two traditions. And one particular phrase that really stuck out to me was triggered by the language of grace. You talk about one woman who you observed in a worship service who every time that that you were using these words of grace, which are supposed to be words of inclusion and words of forgiveness, she was having almost a physical reaction. Talk to us about that experience of when people are including in the shift, their pain from the past. This is almost an unavoidable consequence of the shift of when of people moving from more conservative to more progressive Christianity. And this is, I think, in many ways, one of the things our church does most and probably does best, which is to provide a safe space for people to land as they experience their shift. And it's almost predictable to see new people come through the door and to hear a bit of their story of how, you know, born and raised in the church. And and then, you know, uh, my, my nephew came out as gay and my family threw him out of the house. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't agree with that. So I started to tear apart my faith and I Googled progressive Christian church and it, it led me to you guys. Okay, great. Glad you're here. This is a, a wonderful safe and loving place for you. But what ends up happening, and I love how you phrased it, they sort of including these emotional responses, is there are so many words and ideas that have kind of been misused within the Christian tradition to elicit from people fear and shame as a way to control people. And so as you mentioned, this woman, Grace, not her name wasn't Grace, but the, the particular trigger was around this word Grace. You know, for her, Yes, there's a long, rich history in which that has been used as a, a, a beautiful word to talk about this unearned favor of God, like 100%, but it's been mixed along with this misuse of grace, which is, oh, somebody does something wrong to you? Well, you don't get to say anything back to them. Just apply grace. Or somebody mistreats you, uh, you're, you're, you're 
obligation is just to forgive and to just let them come back into your life. That's grace. And so suddenly we have this really contorted view of grace that ends up leading people into these really harmful and damaging parts of their relationship. So then when they come to a place like uh, our church and they hear the word grace, it's just, it's hard to dis. My point is, is it's hard to disentangle what my therapist calls these old tapes that have been etched in our mind for sometimes for decades of what these words mean and how we're supposed to think about them. And so part of the work that I do is to help people sort of face these triggers head on. Because the the goal when you get triggered is not to then just never be triggered and never hear that word again. The goal is to is to face those triggers head on in a safe and loving environment where you won't receive judgment and you can start to have new emotional responses to these triggers. And what that does is that begins to uh, your brain creates actual new pathways. And this is where the healing happens is you now have these new emotional responses to this stimuli. So yeah, that's a that's a big thing that happens a lot is that people bring in all of this this baggage and this pain from religious language or religious institutions or religious leaders. Like in the number of people that come and instantly have a mistrust of pastors, it's like, yeah, of course you would because you came from a place where your pastor shamed you in front of everybody. So of course you would mistrust pastors. And so part of the work is to is to do the the emotional healing around these ideas so that they become less triggering. I'm also aware that on your own journey, as you have undergone this shift, it it must have often felt like you were sort of reaching in the darkness. And I imagine there have also been moments of genuine frustration and maybe even fear. And so I'm wondering, as we're concluding our conversation, what is it that keeps you hopeful along this journey? What is it that has kept you buoyant, that has kept you moving forward? We have at our church a dynamic, growing, thriving community of people who identify as LGBTQ. And I'm just going to use this as an example as what brings me hope. And for many, people who identify LGBTQ, the, the, the pain of religious trauma and baggage is deep and oftentimes deeper than those who might, like myself, identify as straight. And they come to sojourn oftentimes limping, beat up, mistrusting, wondering, like, really does God love them? And so part of our work is to help people move through this process of healing and wholeness and, and, and really learning to hear and trust, maybe trust that, that you are a loved child of God, just as you are. One of the things that keeps me hopeful is last year at this time. So we're recording this here in June, which in our country is, is national pride month last year at the end of June, the last Sunday in June, we had at our church what we called LGBTQ takeover. I think we might have even called it a queer takeover <laughs> because a lot of people in the LGBTQ community are, are trying to sort of reclaim and re- redeem the word queer. And so what it was, David, is it was a, a Sunday entirely created, top to bottom, entirely created, run by and served by LGBTQ people in our church. Everything from parking lot greeters to the people who made coffee and brought treats to the the greeters and the host, people who ran the soundboard, people who played, everyone who was in the band that day, everyone who spoke into the microphone and did the announcements or gave the message, everything top to bottom was entirely led by queer people. And that to be honest, was my favorite Sunday of 2019. It was this gorgeous celebration. It's not just celebrating pride, although that was it, but really in many ways it was celebrating what it can look like when people begin to experience what the mission of our church is, which is wholeness, wholeness, spiritual, social, and emotional wholeness. And I see people at our church every week move one step closer into this picture of wholeness. And I think that is that is the thing that gives me hope, David, is that people really are coming more alive. They really are finding emotional healing and spiritual healing. They really are moving into a place of abundance and flourishing and wholeness. And if I can play any part in that, whether it's through writing books or doing a podcast or showing up on Sundays and, and opening the doors for a, a diverse group of people, if I can be a part of helping people move towards wholeness, brother, I'm going to just keep showing up because that is good, good work. 
Well, Colby Martin, in reading your book, The Shift, I recognized several shifts in my own life that I have undergone, and I really appreciated how your book gave me language to talk about and reflect upon those experiences that sometimes had been there with me, but I hadn't quite known how to talk about. So first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to write this book, but also taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. Wow. That means a lot. Thank you for saying that. And honestly, it's been a a pleasure being here with you, David. We've been speaking today with Colby Martin. He's co-founder of the Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, California, and he's co-host of the podcast, The Kate and Colby Show. He's a leading voice in the progressive Christian movement, and he helps lead Launchpad Partners Incorporated, which seeks to plant and resource progressive Christian communities across the United States. He's the author of Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality, and today we've been talking about his recent book, The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.